What you call chili can mean very different things depending on where you are in the USA. Go to Cincinnati, Ohio and ask for chili and you're going to get a plate of what they call five-way chili, which is spaghetti noodles, meat sauce, beans, onions, and cheese. In Texas, they wouldn't allow you to serve that. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Jane and Michael Stern are back today on Travel with Rick Steves with more of their tips for finding the best local food venues on your next road trip, or maybe even close to home. I'm also a sucker for handwritten menus because that means that they do different things every day. And you can eat really well and have fun working off the calories in the wilds of Canada's West Coast, where there just might also be a cushy wilderness resort nearby. Get in a kayak and class one and two rapids back down to the cookhouse, which I should say is always open with an amazing little bakery. Backcountry British Columbia and more tips for regional American road food. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Whether your idea of fun is cooking a fish you just caught over a campfire or just settling into a comfy booth and ordering pie at a diner, we've got you covered today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll explore the wilderness comforts along the coast and backcountry of Canada's British Columbia a little later in the hour. We're starting off today with fuel for another road trip across the USA with Jane and Michael Stern. They're defying the corporate sameness that dominates the interstate freeway exits one bite at a time. The Stearns have been eating their way across America's highways and back roads for decades, and they keep finding memorable foods worth writing a book about in every state of the lower 48. They're experts at uncovering the fun things you just got to try that you might not have heard of before. It's a great way to get the flavor of places you're traveling through so far from the familiar menus you find back home. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Talk about different states. Are there are there states that have actual passion for a certain kind of food, like we have our state flower, our state bird, and our, our state food? Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, just take the subject, for example, of chili. Uh, the kind of chili that is acceptable and, and preferred in Texas, in fact, chili is the official state dish of Texas, is a absolutely beanless bowl of chili con carne, meaning... Chili and meat, and that's it. You put anything else in that, and a true Texan will kick you out of the state. On the other hand, go to Cincinnati, Ohio, and ask for chili, and you're going to get a plate of what they call five-way chili, which is spaghetti noodles, meat sauce, beans, onions, and cheese. In Texas, they wouldn't allow you to serve that. Um, In New England, chili is different. In parts of the South, you're going to get chili made with goat meat. (laughs) Uh, It's different everywhere. You know, that's the same with uh, the salad niçoise in France. I mean, when you eat the really? salad niçoise in Nice, it's got to have exactly this, and it's it's almost legally required. But you go to another place, and they're passionate about entirely different ingredients in that standard salad. We had a, a German woman who was writing a book about American regional food interview us recently, and we were butting heads with her because she just said, give me an explanation of American food. And, I, you know, we would say... Well, that's like saying European food. I mean, it's French food, like German food, like Italian food. Oh, yeah. I mean, we are just a conglomeration of many states, you know, many countries within one big giant landmass. But this country shares very little in common except hamburgers. I just really enjoy preparing for these interviews because I just love just fantasizing about all this food that you guys have had the pleasure of eating as part of your work requirement. And we were talking about chili, and you've got this uh, burnt end barbecued chili in in Kansas City. Yes. Now, burnt ends, is that's actually sort of a a cross between chili and barbecue. Burnt ends are the edges of the brisket after it's been barbecued. When they slice the brisket, you know how little pieces and nuggets and, and bits fall onto the cutting board? Those are the burnt ends. Yes. And you collect enough of those and put them into a sandwich or, like they do in Kansas City, top a bowl of chili with them and you have a magnificent meal. Now, is that unique to the Woodyard, which is the restaurant where you enjoy this, or is that just a, a Kansas City thing? Burnt ends started as a uniquely Kansas City dish, but they have spread around. The, there yeah. are several barbecues around the country that My now do My favorite them. is Speed Queen in Milwaukee for burnt ends. For burnt ends. All right. And, you know, like <laughs> so many great ethnic dishes, it started as poor man's food. Yeah. You know, I mean, burnt, it was just scraps. Yeah, yeah you wouldn't, that's right. You wouldn't serve the burnt ends to the boss. You know, <laughs> so that's what the poor people ate. Many of the standard dishes you have in Europe are peasant food that was uh, just a way to get a second round of value out of the leftovers or, or the stuff that was too stale or whatever. Well, think of the the sandwich that defines New Orleans. It's called the po' boy. The po' boy. Because that's, that's who ate yeah. it. And in fact, 
one of the things that you want in your po' boy, if you get, especially if you get a roast beef po' boy, is plenty of debris, which is their word for burnt ends. It's all the stuff that falls onto the cutting board when you slice the yes, roast. We would say debris. debris. Well, they say debris. Yeah, debris. debris. That's great. Before we leave Chile, I was fascinated by Charlie Perubsky's grocery store chili in Topeka. Yeah, that's such. I mean, the place. It's it's a real grocery store, and every Friday they close one of the grocery aisles so you can make your way to a back room where you get a bowl of Charlie Perubsky's chili, which is, again, this would not be allowed in either Texas or Cincinnati because it's much more of a hearty kind of Midwest blend. It's it's beans, beef, and what's really interesting about Perubsky's chili is the condiment that you put onto it. Like no place else, they have horseradish pickles that you must have on top of your chili. That they make The, four the pickles are ferocious, <laughs> yes. The chili is not so hot, but the pickles are ferocious. What, what else is great about this place, Rick, is... It's like going to your mom's kitchen in 1955. All the cooking for the restaurant is done on a little four-burner gas stove that's probably 30 years old. And he cooks the chili in a pot that he's been using for the last 30 years. Whoa. One of my favorite things in my work is just when I come to a city that I know well, i got to do my work, and then I know I'm going to have dinner here. I can fantasize about it. I can start to (laughs) salivate in advance, and I know... It's solid. It's the same people working there. I'm going to have a uh, rapport with the waiter, and I'm going to trust them, and they're going to bring me all the good stuff. If you're traveling around, let's think of some itineraries where you've got a destination. Talk about destination eateries. I think for me, Doe's Eat Place in Greenville, Mississippi, again, a place that's been there for 50 years. You dine in the kitchen, actually. It's mismatched tables and chairs in the kitchen, but you will get one of the best steaks you've ever eaten at. And you know that that's a consistent experience. You go there and you have the same magic. Because the menu has three items on it, and greatest steak in the world, and the greatest tamales, Mississippi-style tamales, which are served in a coffee can by the dozen. Absolutely fabulous. Can I just mention another destination? We just got back from um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and there is a restaurant there. This has not been around for more than maybe five or six years. There's a restaurant there called Hell's Kitchen. No relation to the TV show by that name. Uh A guy named Mitch Omer is the chef there, and he is one of these just Zeus-like chefs. I mean, just brilliant ideas come out of his head all the time. It serves three meals a day, and one of the things you can get there, whenever we go to Minneapolis, I must go to Hell's Kitchen for breakfast because they make what they call Menomen porridge at breakfast. This is a recipe that he got by reading the journals of the explorers who had eaten Cree Indian food. It's long grain, wild rice, cranberries, blueberries. I saw the photograph of that in your book. It looked great. Gorgeous. Maple and cream. The first time I ever had wild rice in my life, I didn't know it existed, and some friend from Minneapolis sent it to me. It's labor-intensive. It's labor-intensive. And it's interesting because we were talking with Mitch, and he said he you know, he sort of found the recipe in these old journals, and he cooked it, and he said it was terrible because it was too dry. Right. It was the cream, the hazelnuts, everything was great. So he added heavy cream to it, and that like, sort of totally transforms it into one of the most luxurious, delicious natural foods you'll ever eat. Now, this was sort of discovered and developed by Mitch, who runs the Hill's Kitchen in Minneapolis. That's right. You also say that their cinnamon bun is, like, one of the best anywhere. Now, that's pretty impressive that Mitch would excel on a national scale in both porridge and cinnamon buns. And beyond that. I mean, his cinnamon bun, that's his father's recipe for a cinnamon bun. It is spectacular because you get a lot of really big cinnamon buns throughout the heartland. But this one is not only big, it's really delicious. Caramel sauce. Good caramel sauce. And and the bread itself, the the bun part of it is really (laughs) sort of good. It's almost like a brioche, you know. But that's not all. I mean, this guy makes his own peanut butter. Um, he wow. roasts the peanuts, he grinds them, he adds a certain... I mean, it's this is the best peanut butter I've ever eaten. I am literally drooling. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're driving to Minneapolis and you're thinking, Hell's Kitchen, Mitch, hello. Yes. All right. Now, that's a destination. Jane and Michael Stern have been updating their directory to the best and most authentic regional American roadhouses, diners, greasy spoons, and beach shacks since the 1970s. And every few months, we check back with them on Travel with Rick Steves to see what they've been eating lately. They also suggest road food theme drives listed by region at their website, roadfood.com. When you do your work, and you've been doing this for 40 years now, believe it or not, you must have developed some interesting tricks. For instance, when I'm looking for a restaurant, even though it's inconvenient for my readers, if it's only open lunchtime on work days, Monday through Friday, 
I know it's a local joint. Uh, that's a European thing. If it's on the late nights on Friday and Saturday, it caters to a different crowd. It doesn't mean it's not good. But there's something really special about a restaurant that only is for the lunchtime crowd. Also, I look for a small handwritten menu in one language in Europe, and that indicates it's going to be uh, just a few things Absolutely. dedicated for local customers and shaped with the season. What do you look for in a good restaurant? What are your telltale signs that maybe even if we didn't have one of your listings that we could look for in Bellingham or Fresno or Tallahassee and know that it's likely going to be a great place? The telltale signs we look for are pretty much the same ones you do. In fact, I would say a good 50% or more of our favorite road food restaurants are places that open early for breakfast, maybe 5 in the ah, morning, okay. and close at like 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Because right. most people then go home for dinner. But the breakfast and lunch is, is the most important I've, part. I've got two tricks also. One is if you go into a little cafe, especially in Ohio for some reason, if there are state fair blue ribbons in the pie case, <laughs> oh, yes. meaning that the woman state who... State are... fair blue ribbons. See, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't see that in Seattle, but that sounds like a great tip. In the Midwest, entering your pie in the state fair and winning a blue ribbon for it, I mean, you're the queen of pies. <laughs> I'm also a sucker for handwritten menus yes. because that means that they do different things every day. Yeah. And I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a sucker for misspelled or badly typed menus because it means it's not Denny's or it's not a laminated menu that you get from Restaurant Central. I, you know, I've seen restaurants that have had the most charming menus, and then they go into some, they talk to some consultant or something, oh, and they, uh, they throw all the charm out, and they have this mass-produced thing that just has no character at all. It happens. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the best signs of a great restaurant are, it makes it a little difficult for the traveler, the best signs of a great restaurant are, there is no sign whatsoever outside. Yeah. Well, that's and there, true. And there is no written menu. You have to just know it exists. And that exists in America, huh? I mean, you Oh, yeah, there are a few yeah. of those. One of my tricks is finding a place that has low rent because all the chains get on the big giant pedestrian boulevard and so on. And, you know, I'm glad Starbucks pays the top dollar for the best location. But when I want a nice restaurant, I want a place that's, uh, you know, you have to look for it to get to and the locals are there and they're not spending a lot of money on their monthly rent. Like well, Bowen's Oyster Landing in South Carolina. Mm. Bowen's Island. Bowen's Island, which you don't even know there's a restaurant there. It's a pile of oyster shells. <laughs> right. And if you look behind it, you'll see that there's a restaurant. No, and the other thing about the low rent is it generally means it's in a neighborhood, you know, where people yeah. probably can afford to live as well. And therefore, it's possible that the restaurant is, is where the locals go and can trust it and they return to it. So quality is important. I also don't like ones that have signs saying buses welcome. No. Oh, tour buses welcome, yeah. Uh -huh. No, thank you. More tips from Jane and Michael Stern are just ahead to guarantee that your drives across the American landscape are a tasty experience. And in a bit, we'll also explore the back roads and off-road opportunities for enjoying the wilderness of Canada's west coast. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. One of the ways to make a road trip fun is to take enough time to really enjoy the journey rather than rushing to your next destination. Jane and Michael Stern are back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves with tips for turning your next interstate drive into a road food pilgrimage. They're the experts at finding the best regional food specialties all across the USA. 
at neighborhood places the locals know are well worth a detour off the interstate. Hey, I was just wondering as I was reading through your book, what about bowling alley eateries? <laughs> well, there are a few great ones. I mean, the, what is it in Trip, South Dakota? It's the Trip Sports Bowl. And it's a, a sure enough, you dine with a view of the bowling alleys. There aren't that many. Let's face it, most bowling alleys do not have excellent food. The Trip Sports Bowl had like good homemade South Dakota food. But you know, if you're in an area like Rhode Island or Connecticut that has a very heavy Italian population, if you see a bocce club or a social club, yep. they often have dinners open to the public. Same with VFW hmm. halls yep. out in the sticks. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Church pierogi suppers in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. The Norwegian Club Pancake Breakfast is my there favorite in my town. So you're walking through, a, you're driving through a town and you see a, a sign that the Norwegian Club's going to have their pancake breakfast. Boy, exactly. that would be. And it's always a great scene. It's got that conviviality. And you know, Grandma knows how to make the right pancakes. And when people bring food to a breakfast like that, they show off. They're, they do That's their right. best. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're fantasizing about road food all across the United States with the gurus of road food, Jane and Michael Stern. Their website is roadfood.com. And Jane and Michael, one thing that fascinates me is you can think clam chowder, and you can think, yes, that's great clam chowder, but clam chowder is different dishes in different parts of the country. you got New England, you got Oregon Coast, and so on. And In fact, you list your top clam chowders Rhode in the book. Rhode Island. Talk about the regional, for instance, What's a classic clam chowder on the East Coast compared to one on the West Coast? Well, it depends on what part of the East Coast you're talking about. In, in New England, it's a kind of a creamy white clam chowder. Then there's Manhattan clam chowder, which is basically vegetable soup with clams in right, it. Right, tomato-based. Ah, okay. and, and then, then there's, there's Rhode Island-style Island. chowder, which is kind of <laughs> tomato, creamy, sort of a cross between the what? two of them. Then, no, wait. You're wrong. No, no. I'm it's a clear broth. No, no. That's, that's South Coast clam chowder oh, is the God. clear broth. And then, <laughs> and then out, as, as you know, Rick, in, in the Pacific Northwest, clam chowder is usually very thick. It's Potato. Tends, tends to have a lot of almost. pork in it. And, yeah. I mean, you could stand a spoon in it. Yeah. It's a high-risk kind of thing to order. It can be great or it can really be disappointing. Yeah. yeah, I tend to get a little chauvinistic because I love Rhode Island, Connecticut, but, clam chowder. Okay, well, I'll keep an eye on that. And oysters are the same way. I mean, you can like oysters in the Carolinas. They're a lot different than Chesapeake Bay. or the. I love the way you described the pan-roasted uh, oysters in the oyster bar at Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station is one of those places where they get oysters from all over the country and indeed the world. I mean, they're not cheap, but if you want to really sample oysters, that is a terrific place to go. And a real taste of New York. And also, just make sure when you get Rocky Mountain oysters, you know <laughs> what you're getting, because <laughs> them ain't oysters. <laughs> no. Do, do those, no. <laughs> these are um, testicles of what? Bull sheep, testicles. Sheep? Sheeps or bulls, oh, generally. Sheep or bulls. There yes. are rooster fries. And there are rooster fries as well. In fact, in Montana, there's... Rooster a, fries? Little yeah, rooster balls? Little. Mm-hmm. And there's are, a are testicle they actually... festival, <laughs> seriously, yeah. once a year in Montana. And that would be mostly sheep and, and bulls. Right. And the, actually, at the testicle festival, there's a taste-like-chicken contest. <laughs> <laughs> do, these, and, do these Rocky Mountain oysters, do they actually taste good? No. <laughs> you know, it's really, I mean... On, it, <laughs> All I can think of is a great Baxter Black poem, the cowboy poet who wrote a an ode to Rocky Mountain oysters kind of sums it up, if you know. No, I, they're not. I mean, it's most of them are, are fried enough. So it's sort of like yeah. chitlins that yeah, you know, the, what you taste meat. is the fried part. The actual meat inside is almost undiscernible. Whoever ate the first raw oyster? I mean, talk about a disgusting that thing. I mean, a real oyster, a sea oyster from the sea. So what we find disgusting in Oklahoma is you know, absolute paradise in New England. Now, well, and when you think about oysters from the sea, this is something that's fascinating to me because it takes, for a lot of people, it takes a lot of nerve to eat a raw oyster. But once you do it, it's a special nirvana, I think. And uh, I don't think truly. of it quite as road food. But do you guys, are you guys aficionados of good raw oysters? I love raw oysters. I, I mean, I'm one of those people who really thinks if I could eat all I wanted, I would just never stop. So what is your tip on, on appreciating the fine differences? Because you can, in a, in a good oyster place, you've got six or eight different um, bays that they came from. Why bother? Actually, I've seen in the oyster bar in New York, they have, I think, 25 or 30. Yeah, and that's, that's really a matter yeah. of taste. I mean, generally speaking, 
I personally prefer like the really small ones, like the Yakina Bays. I mean, mm-hmm. the, to me, when they get too big, there's a, they're slightly gross. You know, like a big yeah. mouthful of raw oyster is too much raw oyster for me. I it's I like agree. a cherry stone clam compared to a quahog clam. Right. It's like biting one in half. You just don't want to do that. No, 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 no. no. Uh-uh. <laughs> it should slide right down. And and you should be thinking about the sea as you as you enjoy it. Yes, I, I, it almost lets me know that I had some sort of a primeval existence as a mollusk or something like that. I don't know. Just, <laughs> well, we all did. We, I guess we did. It takes <laughs> me way, way back. We started as one, we one out cell of creatures in the big brine. All right. We're getting philosophical here, talking about road food with Jane and Michael Stern. Jane and Michael, you talk about destination desserts. I'm not necessarily one to drive a long way for a great maple cream pie. Convince me it's worth it. Well, I just assume you didn't drive all the way from Seattle because to we're much closer to... <laughs> right, we can... There'll be more for us. Okay. Um, <laughs> very now, the selfish. thing about a great, a, a great maple cream pie, what makes it good is its simplicity. I mean, you know, as much as I like a complicated pie with chocolate chips and peanuts and blah, 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 there's something... I mean, a maple cream pie is basically just a cream pie flavored with maple. And if it's real cream, like good, heavy farm cream and pure maple, there's something... It's it's significant and it's you know it's a significant piece of food but it's very light it's almost ethereal. My favorite pie you never see it out of Iowa and that's sour cream raisin pie which mm. is a sour cream base with raisins in a pie crust with a giant fluffy meringue on the top and it's one of the great absolutely great pies. Also, I love sweet potato pie. Well, the great thing about a sour cream raisin pie is is the balance because there's that slight sourness of the cream and the sweetness of the raisins mm. and the custard. I mean, that to me is actually the secret of great dessert. That's why rhubarb, I think, makes such a terrific pie. So when you guys go into a restaurant, do you order different stuff and split it all and then share your notes? What's the process? We usually order the whole menu, I hate to say. We order as much as humanly possible and split it and taste it. And yes. and, and trick number 45 is I always have a, a little hefty bag in my purse because in a little restaurant, a small-town restaurant, you don't want to insult oh. the waitress or the chef by leaving tons of food. So I, you know, I just sort of scoop it into... You actually into dump a, it out and then take yeah, it away now, so they don't know you didn't eat it. Here's where it backfired. <laughs> we went to a, a barbecue rib place, and I I put all the rib bones in my purse. We went to a lobster place. I put the entire shell in my Oyster purse. Oyster shells wouldn't work either. Right. Oh, so, no. you know, you get a pretty nutty look if you don't leave some of it behind. Yeah, I guess. But the point is you want to sample as many things on the menu as you can when you go into a restaurant. Well, I think as many things that are that are meaningful. You know, the thing right. is, if, if you're in barbecue country, you maybe don't need to sample the um, the oatmeal. Right. Um, you know, you want to taste what that restaurant's going to do best. Is there anything that you just don't like? What What don't you like? that? Chitlins. Chitlins. Well, that's, that's <laughs> that, not many yeah. people probably like chitlins. And but. chitlins steamed in vinegar <laughs> is even that's worse even than worse. fried chitlins. Have you, ever had, have you ever had to eat something just because the cook really wanted you to eat it and you just said, oh, please, I don't want to go Well, a pig snout, which Michael actually liked very much, I... I was thinking well, that it's it would... not like a nose on a plate. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like you know, it's it's like shaved and stuff. So you don't real you don't see it as a pig's snout any more than you see the right you know, a brain pulled, sandwiches pulled in St. Louis. On the other hand, pigs' ears do look like ears a little oh, bit. God, they do, they really and they're do. and they're they're kind of. I had to sort of take a deep breath before I bit into a pig's ear. I was expecting it to be sort of tough and gristly, no. and in fact, it's cooked long enough that it's really tender. Where, where would you find pig's ears in the United States? St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis, for some reason, I mean, it has great barbecue like so many Midwestern cities, but for some reason, it it has a lot of weird barbecue things like snoots or snouts. Yeah. Is it a carrier for the barbecue sauce, or is it actually the, the flavor of the pig's ear that people go for? Well, actually, I've been served pig's ears without sauce, just yeah. a pig ear oh. with lettuce between two pieces of white bread. Yeah. And then brain sandwiches in St. Louis at all the bars, mm. okay. which are pretty weird. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're bouncing all over the place from maple cream pie to brain sandwiches. We're talking to the gurus of road food, Jane and Michael Stern. Their book is Road Food, and their website is roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, if you were like the governor 
of a state. What would you name as the state beverage, the state dessert, uh, the official food? Not, not of all 50 states, but tell me a few states where you really would find that local people are proud of this and, you know, uh, just like we have state birds or, or state flowers and so on. Well, there are states that have official state foods. Texas has chili. Uh, Rhode Island has an official state drink, which is coffee milk, kind of like chocolate milk, but it's oh, coffee flavored. Utah has an official state snack food, which is Jello. Jello in Utah. Jello in Utah. And Indiana has an official state drink, which is, you'll never guess this, water. (laughs) (laughs) What's the story about that? This is a governor with very little imagination. No, no, no. No, it's significant because Indiana used to be known, and maybe still is, for the healthful benefits of its spring water. And Pluto water. And Pluto water as well. Which is a purge. And Idaho would be potatoes. Idaho would be right. potatoes, uh, blueberry who, pie in Maine. Who was Fluffernutter? Oh, in Massachusetts, for a long cranberries are one of the official state foods of Massachusetts. But the state legislature battled for a week many years ago about whether they ought to make Fluffernutter an official state food. You know, Fluffernutter is marshmallow fluff and peanut butter on white bread. Uh-huh. And uh, it, <laughs> I don't know why the move was finally defeated because they felt it was it was just not the way they wanted to represent Massachusetts, culinarily speaking. What are you excited about now for your work? I know that your your website is very lively, and it seems like you've got as much energy as ever. What haven't you done? What do you want to do more of? Uh, what do you see in the next couple of years in your road food work? We need to go to Hawaii and eat more plate lunch. You know, that's a big deal in Hawaii, plate lunch, and we haven't done enough of that. And I've never been to Alaska. Yes. Uh, Michael hasn't either. We oh. live in a 48-state yeah. country. We're the, we're the contiguous Stearns. <laughs> I got to my Alaska for my first time in my life just this year and went with a local recommendation for a, uh, a crab shack and had this incredible king crab meal. And oh, I've wow. grown up on crab, and I never had it sure. quite like that. And that Really? really is, oh, you'll have to tell us about that. Yeah, I will before you go up there. Another question. I, I have this sense that as mass food corporate chain restaurants and so on are rising and a lot of the funky places are having a struggle to survive, ethnic eateries are kind of on the rise and give us that same sort of magic regional specialty and conviviality and, and, and passion for food. Talk a little bit about the new dimension of ethnic eateries in the sense of road food. Well, when we started uh, looking for road food, you could only find Mexican food really along the border and in Texas. I mean, or maybe some really bad Mexican food in other cities. Now, you know, there is some terrific Mexican food. I mean, Mexican food from Oaxaca, from Sonora. I mean, different styles of Mexican food around the country. We just did a wonderful tour in Tucson of Sonoran hot dogs. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which is only found in this one particular neighborhood of Tucson. And they're very unique. And in Los Angeles, they have like taco truck tours. And I think that what's significant about the rise of these ethnic foods is that they do what any great road food restaurant does, which is to reflect the community. Any great restaurant, in our book anyway, Mm. is part of the culture of where it is. And obviously, you know, a Vietnamese restaurant in Minneapolis or, you know, a Mexican restaurant in Chicago is there because there's a clientele that really wants it and treasures it Mm. as part of their identity. And that's what makes a good restaurant. Reflecting the community, that is so in keeping with uh, where we're going politically in our country and everything. We are uh, morphing and evolving and changing, and and the country is becoming more diverse, and so is the road food. But, you know, some of the regional road food or ethnic road food really kind of stayed here and never left. We were way, way, way up northwest in Maine um, well, along the international boundary. Right, right. And we came upon a ploy festival, P-L-O-Y-E, which is an Acadian specialty, which is very ethnic. But who the heck has ever heard of a ploy? It's like a yeah. giant crumpet. Huh. And, well, it's a buckwheat pancake. Right. And they're crazy about them there. And every little cafe you go into, you get ploys for breakfast or lunch. Well, I've just noticed that in Seattle. We've got, where we have more chain restaurants, we also have a lot of very good new Asian restaurants that are funky and family, and whether they're Korean or Filipino or Japanese, you step into them, and they have that all the characteristics you're talking about in one of these 
multi-generation, uh, venerable places that you'd find in, in some little town in the Midwest. It's connected to the community. It represents what the community is all about. And it's Absolutely. served with a kind of a passion in a, in a community, convivial kind of way. And when you think about it, that's the history of restaurants in America from the beginning. I mean, we've always been a nation of immigrants. And, you know, American food, there's virtually no food in this country except for maybe some Native American dishes mm-hmm. that are purely yeah. American. Everything has roots elsewhere. We're, we're diverse, we can celebrate it, and we can eat it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating the ethnic diversity of the United States and celebrating road food uh, with the gurus of road food, Jane and Michael Stern. Jane and Michael, thanks so much. It's always fun to talk to you. Take care, Rick. Bye, Rick. Hello, cat. I just got back, and I'm looking for that place they call the Chicken Shack. They say it's fine as wine, and it's really on a ball. No windows, no doors. It's just a hole in the wall. Did you say it was located down by the creek? where you can get a whole gob of good things to eat. All good parts of the chicken once more is a cinch. You can even get the last part that went over the fence. You can interact with Jane and Michael Stern and their community of online road food fans at roadfood.com. From time to time, listeners send us a haiku poem they've written about their travels. Many of them lately have also been about the places they call home. Here's a haiku road trip with some of our favorites. Phil Lefebvre from Buffalo, New York, explains that his city has more than one culinary specialty. In this haiku, he sends us, Not just chicken wings, beef on weck in Buffalo. What the heck's a weck? Mark Carmichael from Homer Glen, Illinois, discovered an island in Lake Michigan that was free of the usual tourist scene. No fudge shops live on Beaver Island, Michigan, just sweet indolence. Jane Palestini of Clive, Iowa, sends us a pair of haiku about her favorite city in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, next. We hope to return there once our house is sold. Home of Liberty, Betsy Ross in Boathouse Row. Pretzels, cheesesteaks, yum. While Kathy Smith Whitman from Normal, Illinois, shares this pair of summer haiku, describing what she calls quaint American summertime customs. Midwest motocross. Dust sweat face in July heat. U.S. pastoral. Smooth peanut butter. Root beer float or pumpkin pie. Foreign tourists gag. Next, have your passport ready for the border control as we check out the back road scene in Canada's British Columbia. 877-333-7425. That's our number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Donald White. I'm a Scotsman, but I live in northern Italy. I'm traveling with Rick Steves and having a blast. (laughs) Growing up in the Seattle area, my family spent part of every summer in Canada. The province of British Columbia is just 100 miles away by car, and it's even closer by sea, where the border crosses through the archipelago of islands known as the San Juans on the U.S. side and the Gulf Islands in B.C. Hundreds of miles of rugged coastline provide boating, kayaking, fishing, and hiking opportunities up through the Strait of Georgia and then into the waters of the Inside Passage, the much-loved route of cruise ships and ferries heading from the city of Vancouver all the way up to Alaska. Seattle-based travel writer Cray Bauer also knows and loves the wilds of British Columbia. In fact, the Canadian Tourism Commission says Cray contributes more articles about travel in Canada each year than any other writer outside the country. Cray joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore some of the fun you can have in the back roads of British Columbia. Cray, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. Now, what's your intrigue for one thing about Canada? Why do you why do you focus on Canada? Well, so I, I was born in the north country of New York State, and I joke on the wrong side of the St. Lawrence River. And then I grew up, I moved to upstate New York and grew up playing minor hockey in Ontario. It's such a natural for me to be up there. I'll be flying to Calgary tomorrow, for example. How do Canadians look at British Columbia? What is it to them? Well, it depends. I remember the editor at the Globe and Mail once years ago said that uh, she considered Vancouver a very nice setting. And she paused, and and that was about that. I think uh, Vancouver, of course, has long had a great association with Asia. 
and then BC in general with wilderness. And I think really Victoria, for example, the rest of Canada considers it it's Florida, quite interestingly, because it is where the weather is most mild across the oh, that's country. It. So the most mild destination in Canada would be Victoria. Right. So it's qu- it was for years known as the retirement community, yeah. but now that's uh, really changed. It's become quite an interesting So the town. retirement community of Canada, people would, would go there for their golden years. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cray Bauer. He's a travel writer who focuses on Canada. Cray's website is flowingstreamwriting.net, and he writes a blog for msntravel.com. Vancouver City would be, it's a great destination, but we'll kind of leave that for another talk. Uh, When you think about British Columbia otherwise, for me, the real appeal is the coastal wonderland, the inland passage. First of all, Vancouver Island, largest island on the North American West Coast, famous for its uh, remote getaways, uh, the resort of Tofino. Talk a little bit about the charms of Vancouver Island. Well, like most of the province, it's it's wonderfully diverse. So you have this Anglophilic community in Victoria and then absolutely the most rugged plateau, if you will, or non-altitude trail, the West Coast Trail is considered one of the great walking, hiking trails of the world. Um, and this is a trail that where often you're in the forest or down on the beach uh, having to deal very carefully with the tides and, uh, the West Coast Trail, that sounds intriguing to me. So even you'd have to do your certain parts of the hike at low tide so you can get around the rocks. Exactly and so right. And that's where the really the trail has its reputation for being arduous is that people have found themselves in a situation where they can't get from here to there, even though there may be only 20 feet away. When I was a kid, I was spent most of my summers up in the Gulf Islands, you know, on the lee side, the east side of Vancouver Island. And the west side was just, to me, so intriguing because you had so many shipwrecks out there and, and just the, the wildness of it. And today, people fly right into Tofino and, and make a kayaking trip and, and just really enjoy the wilds of Vancouver Island, but quite accessible. Very accessible from... Uh, the states, you would go up to Tawasin and mm-hmm. you could take the ferry across. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive to Tofino from there. Quite interesting, again, great altitude changes actually go through a minor pass. Um, I took my uh, 25-year-old son surfing there during the winter because of the cold water surf wetsuit technology. Um, he likened it. He thought he'd be a little cold. He's kind of a boogie board thin kid. Right. And he likened it to being under the covers and under a duvet. He was so warm out really? in the uh, Pacific. It just seems like it'd be bitter cold. Surfing in the winter on Vancouver Island, halfway to Alaska. Almost, Absolutely. You know? And he, wow. he has surfed in <laughs> Cape Town and he surfed in Jamaica, but he was fine. Pulled his hood off uh, halfway through and had a great time. Had a little trouble uh, paddling through the uh, break. Right. But by day two, huh. he was uh, quite adjusted. And you could do that using the resort at Tofino as a springboard? Absolutely. Long Beach uh, Lodge is a wonderful mm-hmm. spot. They actually have a surf school. If you're sort of a beach bum and you can't afford a fancy resort like Tofino, is there an affordable alternative? There are. There are a series of A-frames at Ocean Beach Resort where mm-hmm. you can stay. Also, great camping throughout the year. Of course, this is a wonderful winter storm watch area as yeah, well. Yeah, so if you really want to get away from it, I think the west coast of Vancouver is an exciting idea. Uh, Let's take a little more um, mellow, mild terrain, the Gulf Islands on the other side of Vancouver Island. What are there, about 200 different islands? We think of the San Juan Islands in the United States, north of the border. I grew up thinking Canadian San Juans, but really it's the Gulf Islands, right? It is, and and they are part of the same archipelago, partly in the U.S. because of different diplomatic decisions and things. So the Gulf Islands. There's actually a war up there. You ever run into the the Pig War, I think. Oh, that's, yeah. Sort of an obscure little war between the United States and Canada. You get this island, we get this (laughs) kind of thing. And in the Gulf Islands, there are a number of uh, nature conservancies, a great bioreserve there as well, fantastic kayaking. And then Robert Bateman, the famous uh, artist, lives on Salt Spring Island, and that has many galleries of local and realistic nature art. And some freakishly warm water up there. There is. Off the coast of uh, Parkville, you find uh, water just doesn't move, and so it's reputed to be the warmest water uh, north of Santa Cruz. Now, if you like the Gulf Islands and you want something a little more desolate, you can go farther north, and there's desolation sound. So much of this is named by... Captain Vancouver, right? And uh, exactly. when, they, when they came through uh, charting this for the first time, imagine coming there for the first time. Describe Desolation Sound. Well, Wade Davis, the Canadian National Geographic explorer in residence, calls Desolation Sound North America's Serengeti for the mm-hmm. variety mm-hmm. of uh, sea mammals from gray whales, humpbacks, orcas. You have grizzlies on the beach. You have uh, wonderful sea lions seals of several species. There's a whole community of yachters up there who really know 
where it's at. I mean, they come around the corner and get into Desolation Sound, and there's this one mountain on the horizon that looks like a, a thumb sticking up, and they all stick up their thumb at each other. It's like, now we're home. We're in Desolation yeah. Sound. And you, and you are, and of course, the name suggests that there are not a lot of people, but a fantastic variety of those big, fierce mammals that are so rare. Yeah. And the amazing thing, as desolate as Desolation Sound is, you can fly there on a seaplane from Seattle for a reasonable price, really, and you can uh, fly right in or you can drive, what is it, Highway 101 right up to the far northern end of it. It goes all the way down, you know, the whole length of the continent, but its farthest northern stop is Lund. My sister went up there and um, rented a kayak from Lund and just had a beautiful kayaking time in the Desolation Sound area. Right, and there's a lovely little uh, uh, inn. Again, often you find, I find I run into Californians quite often in B.C. who came once and two days later were selling their house and moving north. Huh, okay. And uh, so there's a wonderful little lodge there, great bakery. There's a, isn't, a isn't, this spot. is a couple of ferry rides north of Vancouver. Uh, exactly. And you've got a, a little region, I think it's called the Sunshine Coast or something like that. Exactly. And it does um, statistically receive more sunshine than the rest of the West Coast. Uh, might I've, get I've, some arguments from Victoria. I've seen a lot of rain up yes. there too, though. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cray Bauer, and we're talking about British Columbia. Cray's website is flowingstreamwriting.net, and he writes a blog about travel, especially Canada, but all over the place. It's at msntravel.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sally's on the line in Lavelle, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I was thinking about Vancouver Island and thinking about it in terms of three special experiences that I would recommend to people. One would be uh, a beautiful bridge from the San Juan Island experience is to take the ferry through to Sydney, which is on the north east tip of the Saanich Peninsula, which is the peninsula directly north of Victoria. There you can bike down this beautiful uh, rural peninsula, weaving into little villages and cafes and past roadside stands of fruit and vegetables. And it just has a really beautiful, friendly, uh, peaceful, tranquil feeling. Uh, the last time I was up there doing that, I was passing a little stand and was just so charmed. It was moss-covered roof, and there was just one little basket of the different fruits or vegetables, and the prices were like 15 cents and 35 cents for this, and just individually labeled, and it was so dear and charming. And I was photographing it, and the woman came out from her house and invited me to come behind the stand and pretend that I was manning her fruit stand. <laughs> oh, that's charming. That's the beautiful sort of uh, intimacy you can get in the, the small towns of uh, Vancouver Island. And, and right, and, and that's just within 15 minutes north of Victoria, fairly mm -hmm. large humming city, and just love getting onto the back roads there of the Saanich Peninsula. Sally, have uh, you, have you uh, kayaked in that area with all the tiny islands that they've got? Absolutely. In fact, most people who I've known kayaking up in that region love kayaking the Broken Islands off Euclid on the west side, but I've actually kayaked on the east side and found that to be a marvelous teeming with wildlife, seals and all types of birds and sometimes whales if you're lucky. So Actually, I was going to mention out of Nanaimo, which is also accessible by seaplane from Seattle, uh, you can fly into Nanaimo Harbor. It's a lovely little harbor, and the town's been recently restored and modernized and a lot of good things going. Uh, out of Nanaimo, you can rent kayaks and kayak several islands in the vicinity of the harbor, you can kayak out to a little restaurant. The name slips my mind at is the moment. Is that on Newcastle Island? Uh, it may be. You kayak up to the dock, and it's a yeah. marvelous little restaurant, and then kayak home at sunset. <laughs> Sounds great. Sally, thanks for your call, and thanks for your insights into Vancouver Island. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Chris, she has some good insights into Vancouver Island. Wonderful. And the cycling culture on Vancouver Island in Canada in general is excellent. And you can take your bike right off the ferry on the Saanich Trail mm -hmm. into Victoria where you pick up the Galloping Goose Trail. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the Galloping Goose is at three different mile posts or kilometer posts, there are pubs that are actually associated with the bike trail 
more than the uh, road. And then you can go all the way to Sook, which is where Sook Harbor House is, which was really at the forefront along with Alice Waters and a few others of the uh, locavore or uh, locally grown food movement. And uh, there's quite a strong uh, First, 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 Nations. First Nation culture and a respect for that in Canada. Uh, as a traveler, how can you incorporate that into your travels in British Columbia? Well, the First Nations, especially in British Columbia, have really come to the forefront. The 2010 Vancouver Olympics, people may recall, there was quite a strong First Nations presence. They actually asked, uh, the committees asked for a blessing from the First Nations before they could even give their bid for those Olympic Games. And in Tofino, for example, many of the guides are First Nations that, with whom you may kayak. Now, there's um, a great museum at Whistler for uh, First Nation culture, isn't there? There is. The Liliwat uh, Squamish, the Squamish Liliwat Center uh, is a fantastic, a gorgeous structure and also information. And they run a very nice um, apprentice program from the Liliwat and Squamish nations where the kids have to go through a quite rigorous application process. Hmm. And then they are the docents at the museum. Really? In an anthropology museum at University of British Columbia in Vancouver with, with cedar longhouses. And that's certainly a gem and mentioned among the best museums of its type in the world. Now, one of the great thrills for a traveler in British Columbia is taking the circle tour where you can go up north on Vancouver Island to Port Hardy and catch the, the British Columbia ferry all the way to Prince Rupert. And then from there, if you could come back down, fly home, or you could take the route inland all the way to Jasper in the Rockies. Talk about that, please. Well, not only is it a ferry ride, but it's a specially designed and built ferry, the Northern Expedition, which was built specifically for the Inside Passage route. So there are many viewing areas. There are wonderful lounges, floor-to-ceiling windows, and also staterooms, individual staterooms. So if you're going with a family, maybe an older parent or maybe have a young child, mm -hmm. you can actually have a stateroom with a bed, et cetera, even though during the summer, it's a 14-hour all-daylight uh, mm -hmm. tour up the Inside Passage. Is it a tour or is it a commuter service? Do people are, are using it for transportation or is it a touristy? Thing. You'll find people using it for transportation, especially during the winter, but in the summer as well. But it really is a tour where the uh, you're welcome and just ask, you know, always ask as we know in travel, but mm -hmm. um, ask to go up on the ship's uh, yeah. deck on the bridge <sighs> and you'll be able to see whales. There's a full-time uh, spotter there who is not only looking for logs and something that might impede the progress of the boat, but also mm. looking for whales and seals, Well, that's because he's got two, two responsibilities. Exactly. Keep the boat from sinking and don't miss those whales. Right. When you think about that cruise, does that start in Port Hardy and go to Prince Rupert? Is that the actual route? Or does that is the route. So okay, you would, so 14 hours, and you've got to get up to Port Hardy, which is quite a ways up Vancouver right. You could fly out of Vancouver Airport, uh -huh. South Vancouver, or you can drive across and then go up through Campbell River, which has, if you're a fisherman, fisher person, has, is called the Salmon Capital of Canada past Campbell River and then all the way up. And then, obviously, you have your car. Prince Rupert is gateway to the Haida Gwaii archipelago, which is... Uh, that makes desolation sound look relatively undesolate, I would imagine. Way yeah, up there. absolutely. You've got First Nation villages and old wilderness ghost towns and so on. In the Haida Gwaii, there's a BC ferry that about five hours out to the archipelago, and, and they've really been left alone for many years now and have established a, a strong culture known uh, for their secret uh, totems. They carve totems. It's not so much their secret. They just don't tell people where they are because it's part of their culture. They're, they're carving it as their conversation with the earth. And they're, so they're not interested in saying, go see what I just did. They've, mm -hmm. they've made their communication already. On the other hand, uh, travelers who go up there would be welcome to check that out. You would ask, they have a, a beautiful cultural center in Longhouse. And so you would ask there if you could see some of the totems. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the wonders of the uh, Pacific Coast region of British Columbia with travel writer Cray Bauer. Cray is a travel writer. He has a blog at msntravel.com, and his website is flowingstreamwriting.net. Cray, in your, in your articles, you talk about perhaps the best wilderness resorts in the world or in this part of uh, Canada. Talk about a couple of these wilderness resorts and, and what's so special about them. Well, my favorite is Clayquot Wilderness Resort, which is outside of Tofino. You can take a boat about an hour up into Clayquot Sound. And so this is an opportunity. As I put it, you can ride a painted horse through an old-growth rainforest to the shore of the Bedwell River where you can fly fish and then get in a kayak and class one and two rapids back down to the cookhouse, which I should say is always open uh, with an amazing uh, little bakery. 
when I think about all of these uh, wilderness resorts in, in British Columbia, one word comes to mind, variety. There's so much to do. It really is. We were talking about the uh, Sunshine Coast before, the Rockwater Resort there, our mm-hmm. platform tents, unlike platform tents you'll ever see. There's Sonora Resort, which is known for big salmon fishing and halibut fishing. Nemo Bay, I did heli yoga at Nemo Bay once <laughs> up, in the, up in the Haida Gwaii where a helicopter took me to Fletcher Falls and I threw out my back, as I recall, since yoga is not my forte. So, Cray, if you could go, let's say you could just fly to any place in the Inside Passage just for the quintessential West Coast of British Columbia experience, where would you fly? I would probably fly to Clayquat and then go hiking where, and I hope that a few juvenile uh, black bears come out uh, during dinner, as they often do, before the pack of dogs, uh, the Brittany Spaniels, who are raised to chase them away, chase them away. Sounds great. Thanks so much for giving us a little look at the back roads of British Columbia. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut and to Gretchen Strauch for their help today. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, Chris Luchuk, and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online in the radio department at ricksteves.com. That's where you can join us as a caller during our next recording sessions or send us your own original travel haiku or hometown brag. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.